This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. Now, we live in a world where women only make up 20% of Russell 300 company board seats, where for every 100 men hired into management, only 86 women are promoted, where women earn 60% of college degrees, yet represent only 15% of the CEOs in the Fortune 500. How do we fix this? Well, there is, of course, the need for real systemic change. But along the way, we have the power to change how we navigate this landscape. And today's guest is just the person to show us how. Deborah Liu is the president and CEO of Ancestry.com, and she's written a book aptly titled Take Back Your Power, 10 New Rules for Women at Work. Deb, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful to be here. So I want to tell our listeners just a little bit more about you, and then we'll get started with our conversation. So prior to work at Ancestry, Deb served on the leadership team of Facebook, where she was the vice president of Facebook app commerce. During her time there, she founded Facebook Marketplace and created Facebook Pay, Facebook Audience Network, and app ads. On her way there, she spent several years at PayPal, where she led the eBay Marketplace product team, created the charitable donations and social commerce teams, and worked in corporate strategy. She also serves on the board of Intuit and is the co-founder of the nonprofit Women in Product. An alumna of Duke and Stanford University, she's also raiding three kids along with her highly engaged husband. So Deb, you've got a lot going on, a full family life, you're running a major organization, and now you're an author. So what prompted you to write a book at this stage of your life? You know, it's interesting, about eight years ago, on an impulse, I was teaching a new hire class at Facebook, and every new hire class of product managers that came in, and actually several thousand had come in, um, you know, I was teaching this class, and I kind of said, you know what, I have an open door policy. If you ever need an ally, reach out, and I can help you. And I, there's at different points in my life, just needed an ally, somebody to bounce ideas off of, somebody wasn't in my organization, somebody, in fact, a stranger might be better. And so people started taking me up on it, which I was a little surprised. And over the course of the last eight years, and I extended this externally after I left Facebook, I have talked to and coached over a thousand women. That's and it's so incredible to hear their stories, but I realized it's not scalable. It's gonna take me another eight years to reach another thousand women. <laughs> And so I'm all about scalability, which is what tech is about. And how do you do things in bulk? And how do you do things that scale? And so I thought if I could just write a book and all those lessons I heard, you know, the questions were all very similar to each other. You know, I feel really alone. How do I find a mentor? How do, how do I make this choice? You know, what is the right career path for me? And so I said, you know what? If I just write this in the book, I can scale this to hopefully tens of thousands of people. It's an amazing process because if you think about it, qualitative research works very similarly, but people go out and we'll do, say, 20 to 100 interviews. So your data collection process was really rich. Yes, absolutely. So use the techniques there and then looking at the trends, pulling together the biggest questions people had and like, what should we do in the workplace? And that's where the book came together. So you also were writing, in, 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 I think, in between that time of realizing you have 
important things to share that will help people. And actually having a book, full bound, chock full of information, well organized, you were writing along the way. How did you talk to me about that process? Because writing is its own skill set, it takes time. Um, but it seems like it was also important to getting you to the point of having the book. You know, if you told me maybe eight years ago that I would be writing a book, I, I would have told you it would be crazy. But about six years ago, I actually started working with a new manager and I write our story in the book and it's in the chapter about forgiveness. And he said, you know, I got to ask him to make our relationship work. I got to ask him my request of him. And then he came back and he said, my only request of you is that you write something and publish it internally every single month. And I thought, I'm not a writer. He's actually a prolific writer. And so I said, you know what? Now I'm committed. So I started writing and it actually taught me such a different way of thinking. I mean, writing was just a discipline that was the type of thinking that I had not done in it so really many years. And then, you know, together that helped me kind of get to a place where I felt much more comfortable. And about four years ago, I actually put together the idea of, of writing this book. I had actually been teaching, um, I had been in an alumni panel of this class at Stanford called Pass the Power at the Graduate School of Business. And over the last several years, I think I've been going since 2015, you know, there's a book that they read, Power, and it's by Professor Pfeffer, and it talks about power, but it was written from a very masculine perspective. I had read that book, it had changed my life. But I also, every year I would speak to the women. And by the way, I was the only woman in all those years other than one other person. Um, and so I, they would, all the women would ask me, well, can you employ these techniques? And I said, absolutely not, not this way. You know, he shows you a world of power, but you have to do it a way that's much more acceptable for women. And so about four years ago, I said in the class, you know, but someday I'm going to write a book about this. And they're like, when is it coming out? I'm like, I haven't written it yet. And so, so I felt really committed to actually writing it down and, you know, taking those lessons from the women I'd coached as well as from this class. I started the pitch and I pulled that together. And as some of you may know, writing is a very long journey. Unlike tech where you build products, it takes six months, you know, maybe a year to take to market. A book is a real process. And you know, you write the you write the proposal. First you have to find an agent, then you write the proposal, you pitch it to different, you know, publishers, and it is just right. a long journey. And it's just amazing to see the end of that journey and the start of the next chapter. It's so and it's exciting for all of us because we get the fruits of your labors. And I hope you're feeling really great about the fact that you've now taken all you've learned and gone through that whole process. And now you have this thing that, like you said, can scale and we can share it with everybody. So yes. I want to tap into something you just mentioned in that story, because it's also, I think, at the heart of the unique approach that you take with the book, which is that um, you know, when we often read about power, it's we it we correlate it with aggressive power, masculine power. And the way that you're talking about power in the book, it's actually quite different. It's, it, or at least the way I interpreted it was that it's about how do we unleash our own power? How do we tap into the way that we can have agency in our own lives? Did I understand it correctly? Yes. Well, you know, in the beginning, I say power is not a dirty word. You know, if you actually look it up in the dictionary, it merely means the ability to influence people and events around you. And that's it. Don't we all want that to have impact on the world? You know, if we came to the world and lived and didn't leave a mark, I think we would be very disappointed. And so I think sometimes we have this idea that power has to be this aggressive, power hungry kind of thing. And instead, it can be a thing where how do you actually move the people around you, pitch your ideas, you know, stand up for other people? How do you actually have an impact on the world? And so I talk about this, but we do have a great discomfort with women and power. And I just want to acknowledge that, you know, lots of studies over many years have shown that, that when 
you hear about, you know, there was a study around, um, they showed uh, a bio of a man and a woman running for office. And for the man, you know, it says, I want power. And the woman says the same thing. And all they do is change the names and the pronouns. And for the man, people said, oh, definitely vote for him. The woman, you know, quotes were like, it, um, it evokes moral outrage, right? And wow. it just, the idea of women in power is a very uncomfortable thing. And I want to destigmatize that. I want to say, you know what, it's okay to want to have influence. Everybody does. You want your life to have meaning. And so instead, really kind of taking a step back and saying, how do you take that opportunity to have impact in the world around you? And how do you say that that's okay? And how do you destigmatize something that has been stigmatized for women their whole lives? Right. And also tapping back into a book that was written about power, but with a masculine perspective, that um, how do we take back that power in our own lives, but in ways that are comfortable, that are both comfortable for us and also um, palatable to yeah. the people who are impacted by the change that we're trying to make, because that's a complicated balance. And you've had a lot of experience with, you know, and the stories that you tell in the book, you anchor us in these very real challenges that you and these other women have experienced kind of ad nauseum throughout life, you know, because the these are real, these biases are just woven into everything. But the book is ultimately so hopeful and framed so positively. How have you sustained your positivity and your positive outlook? Well, I think one of the things that I remember, there's a story of Lenore Blum in there. And she, for almost 50 years ago now, she went to Berkeley and she formed a, an organization called Expanding Your Horizons Network to bring more girls into STEM. At the time, there were so few girls in leadership in STEM. And, and, you know, she just didn't have a lot of role models. And she and her friends brought a million girls through this program. And then, you know, she said, you know, I, I met her at the 40th anniversary dinner. And she said, you know, we thought we'd be done by now, but we still have so much. <laughs> and the thing is, she, you know, I tell her story of how she basically didn't get her contract renewed at Berkeley, how she ended up in Mills College, where they tried to fire her. And by sheer support and ally, she was able to have an incredible career where she went on to Carnegie Mellon to to lead um, in computer science and now is, is working on something. And she's just had such a mark on the computer science industry, but she, you know, her career was almost stuffed out by people who basically could, didn't believe in her. And, you know, but she comes from a place of hope and, you know, for 40, 50 years, she's been fighting and she, you know, she, a lot of her friends are nearing retirement now. And she said, you know, we're still here. And that story is what, what makes me hopeful, which is an entire generation of women blazed the path and are handing the baton to us so that when we hand it off to our daughters and, and their daughters, it will be easier for them. And so I believe that the arc of history bends towards justice and opportunity and, you know, opportunity for everyone. And so, you know, but each day we are fighting for the thing, which is opening up opportunity for more people. And, Absolutely. you know, we should make our mark that way. And it is inspiring, uh, for sure. It's a reason to get out of bed every day. Um, you're so... Um, that kind of hope that you have, that positivity. Um, I, I love hearing the story of how it's fueled and inspired by these people that came before us. But you also write in the book at various points about your religious faith and um, how important that's been to be part of that community and that community has been to you. Um, how has that shaped your perspective on how you lead and the work that you're doing now? 
Well, I think part of it is our faith is, you know, my faith is an important part of my life. My, you know, I grew up in the Christian church and, and I've been a part of amazing faith communities over the, my entire life. And that has been a community that's been nurturing and, and, you know, wonderful, you know, home for me and for my family. And I think part of it is also, you know, I believe that your faith gives you a reason to wake up and, and, you know, to really do the things that we do. And, and for me, it's been such a meaningful, this is why I give to others. It's because it's a demonstration of what I believe, which is that I've been blessed greatly and I want to bless others. And so it is a part of what I do. And there are many people who don't necessarily have, have a faith tradition who also are very giving. But for me, it's, it's really important that, you know, for each person I'm paying it forward, it's because I've been so blessed. It's, um, I was so delighted and touched to see you talk about that aspect of who you are and your experiences. And in some cases, they were directly instructive about these issues of power, but it was also gave dimension to you that I really loved reading about. Um, it also led me it, it, to another part of the book where you talk about forgiveness um, and, and, the pow- and, the, and the power in forgiveness, which um, it struck me as so generous in spirit and in some ways an important and novel way to look at things. Um, just to give a little context to the listeners, um, you were describing stories of women who had been harassed at work, um, experience the all too common experience of um, being hurt, oppressed, harassed, assaulted, um, but the importance of letting that go. Can you talk to me a little bit and talk to our listeners a little bit about why forgiveness is actually attached to your own personal power? Well, first, forgiveness is freedom. I think a lot of times, you know, the I, I remember my coach, I was talking about some some slight at work and, and I would talk to my um, career coach and she said, when are you going to put down the backpack? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you know, you have these, these grievances against other people who are hurting you, who are doing these things. And they don't even know, but every single time you're walking, you're carrying this backpack, you add another stone and you carry it and you carry it, you carry it. She's like, when do you want to put down the backpack? And just think about that that word picture, right? I have to tell you, as I was reading this and I was feeling all the feelings, like the anger on behalf of other people, the anger I felt at the things that I've had to endure. And then when I read that, um, I wrote on a post-it note, it's now on my dresser, that idea that these, uh, that we get burdened by carrying these grievances around. Um, I thought it was just, a, like you said, a fabulous word picture and almost as useful reminders when my yoga instructor said, um, your shoulder blades should sit in your back pockets, like stand up straight. But it's such a simple image that is now in my head all the time, because I don't think a lot of us realize how much energy gets expended on holding on to the hate and the anger. Yes. Well, that's why when I talk about forgiveness being your freedom, you know, uh, Lauren Toussaint, who's a professor I had spoken to for this book, he studies forgiveness and you know, at Luther College, and that's his his field of study. And he said, you know, women especially, but everyone who forgives at work are more productive, less stressed, and have huge health benefits. But if you carry that anger, you're carrying it. You're the one who's holding that grudge, and you're the one who's carrying around the weight. And so, you know, it doesn't mean that the other person was right. When you forgive someone, it's it's super important. It doesn't mean that they even deserve forgiveness. You know, I tell the story of Polly Shepard. You know, her friends were murdered in front of her at the church in Charleston. And she forgave, and she and the people of, of the families of those who were murdered forgave 
forgave the killer, not because of him, but because it was to heal a nation. You know, rather than talking about Dylan Roof and what happened, everyone focused on their act of forgiveness. It doesn't mean that they didn't persecute him, they didn't testify against him, they didn't ask for what was just, but they sought yeah. justice, but they offered forgiveness because it was something that they couldn't carry for the rest of their lives and they didn't want to carry. And it healed a lot of people who were so angry after that incident. And I think sometimes, you know, forgiveness is not about saying you don't, you don't need justice. It's not about reconciliation. It's really about yourself and your relationship. And so, you know, a lot of what is in there. And the last story I, I share was Rowena Chu. Rowena Chu, um, she was assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. And for her, it was actually forgiving herself. She kept saying, if I just told more people, if I, if the cops had just listened to me, if she told, she said, I felt like I told dozens of people and no one cared. And it turns out later she found out that this was a systemic issue. But she's like, I could have saved all of these women so much pain. But, you know, forgiving herself was the most important thing because she was the one assaulted and she was carrying the burden. She wasn't allowed to tell anybody about it because the, the non-disclosure agreement. And she just felt so guilty and carried with that. And then she eventually uh, became part of the Jodi Cantor book, um, you know, she said, and the movie. And, and now she tells her story everywhere. And it has been such a burden lifted off of her because, you know, it wasn't her, it wasn't just her responsibility to, to save everybody who came after it was actually the people around her that wouldn't listen. But it took it's her a long time to get there. It's unbelievably challenging, but it's um, an amazing reframing when we think about the power that we gain when we're no longer carrying around that backpack. So Deb, there's another story that you tell in the book um, uh, that involved your pastor, but it was actually about, um, and it taps into as you were preparing to get married, if I understood it correctly, um, where your fiance was sharing with him um, that he would take a back seat in order to let you focus on your career. Can you tell us that story and how you wound the relationship between the way you dealt with this with the pastor and finding your own voice? Yeah, you know, so we were at pre-marriage counseling. We've been going to this church. My husband actually met at church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we were Atlanta, um, going to Atlanta church where we had both moved into the same, to the same city. And we were going to pre-marriage counseling. And I had just gotten to Stanford. I was so excited. I was going to graduate school. It was my dream to get my MBA at Stanford. And my husband was sharing how he was getting ready to move. And I had accepted this, uh, this offer and that he was going to move across the country with me. And I remember the pastor just looking really disappointed and said, you should have the lead career. Why does she need a graduate degree to stay at home? You know, the husband has the lead career. And my husband just like sat there and stunned. I think both of us were pretty stunned by this. Um, and I just really, I didn't know what to say. And I was thinking, um, is what I want wrong? Is this like not what God wants for me? And, you know, I remember going home and having this conversation with my husband and he's like, you're named Deborah for a reason. And for those you don't know, in the Bible, Deborah is the only woman judge spoken about in the Bible, in the, the book of Judges. And she was an incredible leader. And so God doesn't make mistakes. And, you know, he said, you know, why would he put a, a woman as a leader in the Bible if he didn't believe women could lead? And he said, you know, he had, my husband said, you know, I had always wanted to name my child Deborah, a daughter Deborah, but then I met you. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think he just said she's just such a powerful woman. And, you know, then he said in Proverbs 31, there's a woman who talks about, you know, she's more precious than rubies. And that's a story of a woman who's an entrepreneur. She's a mother. She has a side business. She leads her family. 
And he joked that, you know, her husband's probably fitting at the gate, you know, spitting in shoes. That's how they did contracts back then. My husband is a contract lawyer. <laughs> and uh, and he, he joked that, you know, God doesn't make mistakes. He puts those stories in to amplify women. How could you think that, you know, you shouldn't do this? And, you know, we ended up speaking to the other pastor of the church, the senior pastor of the same church. And he said, my mother, my wife is an incredible leader. She is very well so, you know, she's like, she had, she had multiple master's degrees and, and PhD or something like that. And he said, she's an incredible leader. You should do this. And he was so supportive. And recently when the book came out, I actually sent him a note and thanked him for changing the course of our that's, career in our lives. So. That's so lovely that you did that. So I found this whole story fascinating, both because of the how compatible a woman's leadership could be within the construct of your faith, but also because it's a it's one of many signs about the kind of egalitarian marriage you have. One that I think David sounds like a pretty special guy. But, um, <laughs> He's very special, of, but that is, there's many more of him and you should find one if you do not have one. I did. I actually did find one and I'm super grateful, but it took me two t- turns at that. Um, but in the book, you have a really, I think, profoundly important chapter on um, as a primary element, uh, one of your 10 rules, it's like, it, it, it has to do with how we divide up responsibilities at home and at its heart, how we construct our relationship with our partners. And so can you talk a little bit about how you and David, um, aside from obviously he's on board, he's got the right perspective, but how do you navigate balance within the home and the challenges that emerge as each of you are confronting different aspects of your career. Yeah, I mean, we just, he's been the most amazing partner. And I start that chapter called Creating Balance in Home. It's an important role. And we forget that, you know, half of your life is spent at work, but half of your life is spent at home. And they, they're yin and yang. If one is out of balance, you know, the other will be out of balance as well. And so you really need to find that balance at home. And, you know, the start of the chapter starts with Sheryl Sandberg's quote, um, the most important career decision you make is who you choose to marry. And it is absolutely yep. true. Somebody who is supportive is wind at your back. And somebody who's not is going to be friction every single day. And it makes a huge difference. And you look at the stats, you know, women tend to do way more housework, take, take on a lion's share of the household responsibility, the household management. And... It it's affects your career and their ability to advance because you just need a home parent, somebody who's going to anchor, you know, your children's lives, the people, the person who goes to the school conferences. And if you don't divide up that work, it's one person's responsibility, which means only one career can thrive. And so for us, we actually, we have something we call a swim lane marriage. You know, just like you don't cross lanes. You each have a thing you're responsible for. You don't check up on each other. One example for us is my husband plans every vacation we ever go on. He sends me an itinerary, show, tells me where to show up. I read the itinerary. I do all the packing and ensure that we have food and we have everything we need. And like, we never ask each other, hey, did you pack this or did you do that? We just go. And I we, love it because embedded in that is such mutual respect and trust. Absolutely. And we, but we have to be worthy of trust too. He's never made mistakes on the, you know, if something happens, he's like, I'll take care of that. I'll call the Airbnb. We'll take care of that. And he never delegates that responsibility. But for me, I make sure that all the kids have all their toothbrushes and all their shoes and everything is packed and that, you know, we have a smooth chip and I take care of all the food and everything like that, where we eat. And, and it's just been really compatible. And this is a small way, 
where and a lot of marriages, the one person takes care of everything and someone else just like arrives. And they said, you know, but we do this for every part of our relationship. And we have taken turns on things too. So it's not just one person's responsibility. And I did um, take like childcare and camps for the first 10 years of my kids' lives. And then he'd taken over the last six years. My son is 16 now and my daughter's 13 and my da- other daughter's 10. He takes care of all the camps in the summer. I just look at the spreadsheet and you can see every year, which one of us did it. All of our notes are there. We have it all. And he, when he took it over, he's like, these are the things I want to prioritize. This is what I talk to the kids about. And I'm like, great. Where do they show up? That's and amazing. It's amazing. I never think twice. And he never thought twice in all the years I did it either. There's also a brilliance. And I think it may be the manager in you, um, the real CEO and leader in also the way that there are checks and balances in it. Like I loved that one of, he pays the, as I understand it, he pays the bills. Yes. You open the mail. Yeah. So if something got missed in the bills, you would catch it. So you're both, because the other thing that does is doesn't just divide labor. You're both aware of what's going on. Yeah. Just absolutely. like by planning vacation, he made an itinerary, you packed for everybody. It means you both know what you're doing. You're both vested in the outcome. Yes. But at the same time, you're actually ebbing and flowing together. You're true partners. And one thing is he's a lawyer um, and, you know, we renegotiate all the time because the other <laughs> thing is you kind of get stuck in ruts, right? And so right. one thing we do is we intentionally renegotiate when there's a change and we say, Hey, this is a time to day. He took a different job, you know, and I took a different job. And each time we renegotiate the division and we say, what's more fair right now? What do we need to do? And I think that that has just made it possible for us to have an amazing partnership. It also sounds like it's kept the need to nag completely yeah. at bay. Well, I should talk about that. The, the note on nagging I put in the book, nagging is actually a symptom, not the cause, you know, they say, oh, you know, she nags him. And I'm like, no, no, that's not the problem. The problem is why is that even necessary that you remind somebody else of doing something? You wouldn't do that to your colleague, remind them to do things. And yet, if you feel the need to remind somebody at home to do something, it means that something is broken in your communication and your division of labor. And so nagging is actually, I treat that as a symptom and it should be completely unnecessary. If you trust each other and you have mutual respect, and that you honor each other such that you're living up to your half of the bargain, then, you know, you should never have to do that either way. And it sounds like you've really been able to construct that. And I have to tell you, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book, the way that you share on this. One of the things that you shared with us in the book is that, you know, despite the fact that you are currently a CEO of a company that everybody in America, if not the world knows, you didn't always feel the kind of agency that you do now. And some of that was anchored in your identity as an Asian American girl growing up when you did. How did you start to understand that and see your own power? Yeah, you know, I so I was born in New York City in Queens near my family. So I grew up like, you know, surrounded by family. And then my father was discriminated against at work. He didn't get, they wouldn't honor his engineering degree and they just refused to and his friend, who's Indian American, said, why don't you come down to South Carolina where he got, he had gotten a job. They don't discriminate in the government. I can get you a job. I'm not sure what possessed my father, but my parents picked up and moved to a state they'd never been to or even heard of. And we grew up, I grew up in a small town in the South. And, you know, it was really hard being so different. I looked like almost nobody around us. And, you know, people would say, why don't you go back to where you came from? And constantly, you know, they made fun of our food, our traditions, everything, like our names. And 
And I just remember feeling like the other my whole life. And so I realized that if I just, you know, my parents were like, just ignore them. Like they, my parents had such resilience. They came from, a, you know, a background where they came to America with almost nothing. And they, you know, went to college and they never knew if they had enough money to even fly home to see their parents, right? It took them years to kind of, to even go home. And so for them, this was nothing. But for me, I just said, you know, if I just didn't, if people didn't notice me, maybe they can stop commenting. And so I said, if I was just really quiet, I just put my head down and it worked until it didn't work. It worked through school. You know, you, you, you're successful until it hit, you hit the wall. Right. And so right. I got to engineering school. I, I said, I was going to graduate and, you know, I was going to graduate number one. So I can get a scholarship to college. I got a scholarship to Duke. I went to Duke. I went to engineering school and, you know, as an engineer being really quiet worked out great. And then I got to consulting. And that's when I realized <laughs> not so much, not so much. Like, and, and they said, well, your analysis is good and your, your beautiful slides, but you're really bad at the client service part of client service. <laughs> I was thinking, oh no. And I realized that like part of the work wasn't just the, you know, doing the work well, but it was really connecting with clients. And I just did not know how to do that. I had spent so much time in silence and then I went to business school and of course, business school, 30 to 50% of your grade is class participation. Yeah. It was horrible. You're what? not allowed to be invisible yeah. if you want you to You can't pass. be invisible in business. And I thought, this is going to be hard. And I had to teach myself. Like I, I had little tally marks how many times I spoke in each class just to remind myself to speak. And I really had to be very intentional. And it just took me a long time to be comfortable in my own skin, to be willing to speak up because for so long I was silent. And it was a practice, you know, I was so introverted and it was a practice. I had to teach myself a skill and I treated speaking up like a skill. And that taught me that you can learn almost anything if you really had to do it. And it it sounds like it was life-changing for you. It was completely life-changing. A lot of introverts tell me, well, you know, you don't understand. I'm an introvert. I'm like, you don't understand. I was too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's taught me so much. So much in life is actually, if you're willing to learn it, you can learn it. And that's the learning mindset I talk about in the rules, which is if I told you to be successful at your job, you had to learn a new language and you're terrible at languages, you would figure it out. You know, it's like you can head up right. to the region in Mexico, but you have to learn Spanish. You would go learn Spanish because it's a huge opportunity. And I, I, treat, I think we treat life as a learning experience where almost anything can be learned. Yes, you're not going to be at the Olympics, but you can learn to run, you know, a marathon. You know, you, yes. you, can, you can do almost anything. And so that has been the lesson that I've learned, which is finding my voice was so important to my long-term success. So there was another aspect of it that you write about beautifully in the book, and you use the term giving yourself a free pass. Um, And it's a pattern that's attached to this. Can you explain what that concept is about? Yeah, you know, so many times we say, well, you know, like my friend, Caroline Zazaki, she's a leadership trainer. She's like, you know, she calls it unintentional, ridiculous strategy, right? How many times do you show up to a meeting on Zoom? And then you just don't say anything. And you don't go into the meeting going, I'm just going to go in this meeting and not say anything. You know, you don't go, I'm going to drain the energy of this room by sitting in the back and looking grumpy. But how much of you actually ended up doing that? And so we give ourselves the free pass by not asking for the raise, not pushing for the stretch assignment, not, and I tell the story of several women in there, two of whom are, you know, extremely successful. One of them is Ellen Ochoa, first Hispanic woman in space. She was, um, you know, the director of the Johnson Space Center asked her, hey, can you look over this list for my successors? And she was two levels down and, and she looked at it and she goes, but what about me? And he said, you want to run the space center? 
you know, think about that. She was literally in line behind her, her leader, behind her manager to run the Space Center. And it never occurred to the director at the time. She became the director of the Johnson Space Center because she raised her hand and said, yes, I would like that opportunity. But it didn't even occur to her to ask before that. And it's the same thing with, you know, so many women, I think, you 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 give yourself a free pass because maybe you just don't want to ask because it makes people uncomfortable. But if you don't ask, you definitely don't get it. Right, and you use this term that I just love. Like, why are you engaging in unintentionally ridiculous strategies? Like you said, I'm just going to go to a meeting and not say anything. Then why are you there? Absolutely. And the other part is like, I don't want to know if I'm going to get promoted, so I'm not going to ask. Do you really? That's a, that's a ridiculous <laughs> strategy. Instead, maybe you don't want to ask the direct question. You say, hey, Laura, you know, what is the distance between me and the next opportunity? Can you work with me? So now, rather than asking a direct question or making you uncomfortable and myself uncomfortable, I'm giving you an opportunity to be my ally and come up with a plan for us to both get there. And so in a lot of ways, I think sometimes we are scared of the direct question. And the nice part of us is like, well, it's nicer if I just, you know, I want to be the good girl. I don't want to say these things. But instead, what if we said, hey, what if we turn the question on its head by, instead of asking, will you promote me, Laura? Say, Laura, you know, we've been working together for a long time. You know, where do you see my gaps? And what do you think is the distance between me and getting to the next level? And how can we work it's together? Such a, it's such a um, skillful way to approach it. And it, it's actually a good segue into my next question for you, which is that, you know, there's, it's important that we find and use our voices and that we're not taking these free passes. Yet it can also be quite fraught because not only are there the awkward conversations just of anybody asking for a raise or promotion, but there's the added bias of when women are, are advocating for themselves, women in negotiation. So that adds a, a whole other layer of complexity to it. How did you learn how to um, not take the free pass, use your own agency, but do it in a way that could enable your voice to actually be heard and be effective in a world that you know is so biased? Yeah, well, I think sometimes when we ask the question, we, we ask a yes or no question, so it feels like it's the end of the journey. Instead, if you ask a question where it's the start of a journey together, then you're, you're actually opening up more opportunities because maybe your manager says, hey, you know, I, unless you know, I leave, there's not an opportunity here, but let's talk to someone else or maybe you can learn some other skills. You know, basically getting the answer opens up so many more possibilities. And there have been people on my team have asked me like, hey, you know, would I have the chance to do this, this other role? And, and I said, not here and not this role right now, but what about this other team? I know someone looking and you could become a manager right now because we just don't have a management position open, at least for the next year. And so I've placed other people, but if they didn't ask, I didn't even know that they would want to be a manager. You know, how does someone right. help you if they don't even know what you want? And so a lot of times it's such a good ask. It's such a good point. And also that it's starting with curiosity and not with making demands. So Deb, speaking of people coming to you, letting you know that they want to advance in the world, that brings up the topic of mentorship and sponsorship. Um, in the book, you broke them into four categories. And I really loved how you did this. Mentorship, sponsorship, team circle. Could you talk about the relationship, how they're different and how they're related? Yeah, a mentor is somebody who gives you advice. You know, there's somebody who is, you know, your advisor, somebody who's a guru is giving you kind of something, you know, and it's usually a one-way relationship. They're just giving you advice, you're receiving it, and that's it. 
And, you know, mentors, by the way, women are over-mentored and under-sponsored. There have been a bunch of studies about this because the sponsor is somebody who opens doors for you. This is someone who puts their reputation on the line and says, I think she's ready for a stretch assignment. I'm going to put her up for this. You know, I tell the story of how Sheryl Sandberg had me meet with Brad Smith, the CEO of Intuit, many years before I joined the board. And I was just a director at the company. And she said to me, and I walked in that room, she goes, before you go meet with him, maybe someday he'll have a he'll have a board seat open and you can join his board. And I'm like, first of all, I'm barely a director at this company. I manage a small team. There's no way that, that I would ever join his board. And three years later, she reached out and she said, by the way, Brad has an opening on the Intuit board. Do you want to interview? And the thing is, she that. put her reputation on the line to introduce me to him. And then again, several years later, and if I had failed, you know, she had her personal reputation. She had served with right. him as well. And so, but these are the kinds of people who, who say, you know what, I believe in you so much that I'm going to put you up for these opportunities. I'm going to stretch you. And I know that you could fail and it could bounce back on me negatively, but I don't care because I know- I'm taking the chance because I believe in you. Yeah. And that's, a, it's their investment of their time and reputation. And so that's why sponsorship is so powerful because it's not just the people who give you advice and are hands off. It's the people who have skin in your game. And so they are the ones who open tremendous doors, give you the stretch assignments, you know, assign, give, you know, give you things that you could never have imagined. I remember when my manager said, you're going to be VP here someday at Facebook. And I said, you're not even a VP. And by the way, I'm not even a director. <laughs> and he said, that's okay. And he set me up to take his role when he left the company. And then he said, you know, someday you're going to take my manager's role. And I ended up doing that and expanding the team. And so you know, I think that that is the kind of sponsor that everyone needs. And if you don't have one, it's really important to get one because those are game changers for your career. So this is so this is an important point because, you know, that idea um, and I hadn't known that statistic that women are it's in a way we're over mentored, like, hi, honey, let me teach you how to do things. But under sponsored, um, how do how can we go about finding sponsors for ourselves? Because I know from my own personal experience, it's not there are different cultures in different fields and industries, and it's not an easy thing to find if the culture isn't oriented towards it. Well, I think that's the biggest challenge is sponsors choose you. It's really hard for you to ask somebody to be your sponsor. And so yeah, the system awkward. seems really rigged. It's just that I don't want to reveal that and share that with people because so many of these sponsors picked me, not because I, there was something special that I did. And it seems really unfair, right? But the interesting thing is a lot of sponsors pick people who are very similar to them because they say, this person reminds me of myself 10 years ago. This person reminds me of myself, you know, like when I first started out. And so because of that, though, and leadership of many companies looks, you know, it's a certain right. way, you end up with more people being sponsored who are more like the leadership, maybe not bringing in as much diversity. So one thing I do encourage you to do is turn your mentor and your sponsor. Rather than just taking the advice, take the advice go back and say, this is what happened when I took your advice. Is there something more I can do? Like really make it a proactive relationship rather than sort of a receiving relationship. Then you say, you know, is there a stretch assignment you think I should apply for? Is there some opportunity that you think I'm missing? And really turn the, the sponsorship to so the mentor into your sponsorship relationship by slowly evolving to show that you're eager to learn, but also that you're willing to take risks with them. I think you're, you're also reinforcing what we just talked about a few minutes ago, which it sounds like going in with a combination of three things, curiosity and framing the way that you communicate with that curiosity. What could I do? How could I learn? What might be next? Yes. Um, bringing your ambition with you so that you're and, and your learning mindset, which is what do I need to learn? How can I grow? 
Yes, absolutely. And really kind of have that eagerness, you know, the people I've mentored that I eventually became sponsors for were the ones who were the most eager to grow, who challenged me and said, you know, show me opportunities I'm missing. And it really challenged me as a mentor to say, you know what, this person is eager and wants to do more. How can I open doors? And so it's really kind of turning itself on its, on its head, which is turning mentorship into sponsorship. The other two you had asked about is team and circle. Yes. So, your team is the group of people laboring alongside you. It's the people every day you're working with. And by the way, you spend probably more time with them than you spend with your own family often. It's true. Right? You're literally at the office laboring with them every day. And, you know, so making sure that that team is somebody, a group of people you feel like you can live life with, but also, you know, you can thrive with as well. And if it's not the right team, like find the right team for yourself. And then finally your circle is outside of work. You know, what are the, who are the people you rely on? the people that you cry with, the people that you run to when something goes wrong, but you celebrate with, that is the group of people. And I've I've had incredible groups like that. My Bible study being one over many, many years, but also like we had a group called the leading ladies at Facebook, which is all the the women VPs got together. And when something terrible happened, we would cry each other's shoulders. We would support each other. When people left, we celebrated. We, you know, we would just, it was just a group of people. We just had a reunion together and you know, once one of those things where, you know, over the course of like five, six years, we just grew really close. And, and those are the people you, you treasure in so many different ways. And so, you know, you need to have that. And it's not a work thing. It's really about friendship and support. And, you know, when something happened as one of our kids or, you know, we were struggling, this is, these are the people you get advice from. And I just think that that's such a precious thing. And if you don't have that, you know, think it's like you, they, you're living without support, without the scaffolding you need to be successful. Yeah, it, it can be so emotionally trying and practically challenging. And this brings me back to a relationship you were talking about in our first half hour. But, you know, these are all fundamentally the point of all four of these mentors, sponsorships, your team, your circles, that these are positive, healthy relationships that are about everybody growing together. But unfortunately, we all have the experience of difficult relationships, particularly in the workplace, and they can be really damaging to us, to the culture, to the organization. Um, can you share with us, um, I think this was with Boz, yes. um, that you had this, um, talk to us about why the relationship was difficult, but in particular, how the two of you navigated your way through it, because it was not an easy process. And it, to me, represents a different form of courage. Well, I always ask people, there's always one person that you would quit rather than work for them. Mm-hmm. Boz was my person. <laughs> because we're so different. He's this imposing male who, you know, was the loudest voice in the room. And I always just felt myself shrinking whenever we were in the room together. And I worked on that area that was complementary to the area he owned and, and was really intertwined. And every time I was just terrified of going to speak to him. And we just had a really rough relationship and everyone knew it. It was so bad that Cheryl actually invited Fred Kaufman from the book Conscious Business to come like negotiate us to, to like couples counseling. everybody sees it and everybody sees it it's one of those things where you know you have a bad relationship you don't know what to do about it everyone else knows and it was very difficult for us because we just didn't know we tried talking it out we we did the counseling with red kaufman and we just we said okay we're just gonna leave it at a detente basically and you know we continue to work um in our various our different orgs and then one day my manager said he was leaving and he said by the way we're gonna reorg and your report to boss and i said i'm gonna quit and he said, Mark wants to talk to you. <laughs> so I went to talk to Mark. And Mark said, just give it a chance. Give it three months. 
And I really need to confront why I felt this way about Boz. And, and I sat down with him and I said, you know, you remind me of the people who bullied me growing up. You were really imposing. You have this big personality. And when you talk to me, it, feel, it felt like you were yelling at me. And I don't think it was what your intention was, but at the same time, I just felt it very viscerally. But you found me very evasive. And, and we talked about it. He's like, yeah, every time you evaded my questions, every time you shrank back, I felt like you were hiding something. And so we were in this doom loop together. Right. And people would see it. And it was just like this constant doom loop. And we talked it out. And we said, you know what? We're going to get on the same page. Because for the sake of our teams, for the sake of the company, I mean, at this point, he was running ads. I was running one big ads vertical plus platform and payments. And, you know, a lot of our teams were intertwined and I, we had to figure it out or, or I would have to leave. Um, and so we talked about it and then, you know, we worked through it. And, you know, this is part of what he asked me for was he asked me that I should write something every month, which I told him when I was writing this book, I just want to tell you, I wrote this book partly because he was the one who forced me to write. And by learning <laughs> to write, it brought me here. And he said, that's the best ending to our story. And so he allowed me to share the story in the book, which was incredible. And he helped me edit it like crazy to make sure, you know, that it, it told the story in all of its fullness. And it's in the chapter about forgiveness because part of it was, I don't think he knew that I was holding this grudge against him. And I didn't realize that I was holding it either. And until we were confronted with it. And I think we just, and we ended up having an amazing relationship. We're still to this day, we still keep in contact and, you know, he's been so gracious and, you know, and I just think sometimes, you know, sometimes it's just a misunderstanding. Sometimes it's a clash of personalities, but that friction every day, everyone around us felt it. Our teams felt oh, it yeah. all the way up and down. Our fellow executives felt it. And it was, <laughs> it was negative, honestly. And I had one of those once and it was just as you described. It kind of like was toxic to everybody in the room. And I would feel sick to my stomach at the thought of going into a meeting with this person. I would avoid the meetings. Like it, it, there's no good that comes from living that way. But it sounds like, I messaging was your gift that because yeah. it wasn't just that you realized what it was, but you found a way to communicate it so yeah. that he could hear it. And I think once we confronted that, you know, it was really cathartic because sometimes it's just the, the elephant in the room and we just couldn't, we didn't know how to talk about it. And in the end, like he's, I mean, he was so gracious to say, you know what, I'm sorry. And I'm like, you know, I, that wasn't what was necessary, but he was so, he was so kind to actually acknowledge that what he did was completely unintentional though. And that's the part I think sometimes we hold grudges and we, we, they, the other person doesn't even notice. <laughs> right. And, right. And we're all so hot under the collar about it. And in many ways, we're having our own experience with that thing, with our imaginations and our own kind of emotional hot buttons. Yes. And so taking a step back, it's been such a rich relationship. We ended up working together for a long time. And when he left the team, I said, you know, I, I thought, I never thought I'd say this, but it was, you know, I'm kind of sad that we're not working together anymore. And he's now the CTO of the company is incredible. And I just, there's so many times, a lot of this friction is friction at work. That's really solvable. If you really put your heart in. It's such a great story and a great reminder. And it also taps into like, as you take the long view on things, um, it reminds me of another thing that you wrote about that I thought was really instructive and inspiring. And it was um, how you make a strategic plan for yourself, mm. how you, um, and cause there are a number of times that this is, I can hear this in the things that you talk about is how do you play that long game? Like yeah. whether it was Cheryl saying, you're gonna be 
this person may invite you to be on his board. Um, how do you think about what's going to happen down the line? But talk to me about how you create these strategic plans for yourselves. And in particular, drafting our obituaries, crafting our vision and the annual milestones. Well, I think sometimes like, you know, one thing I, I share was, and when we first got to business school, one of our professors was like, write your obituary at the start of the class. And all of us were, you know, brand new, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed first-year students. And we're like, what? And he read all of them and he shared the common themes. And, you know, in our 15th um, reunion, two of our members of our class at Stanford had passed. And we realized that their story is done, you know, and you, you don't realize that time is passing in that way until you reach that moment. And we were, you know, you, when you're 20 something and you're in business school and you're writing your obituary, it's kind of a joke, right? When you look back 15 years later and you realize that two of them have been published, basically, it's really sobering. And so I asked you to like, you're just writing down, like, what do you want to be remembered for? What mark do you want to make in the world? It's like, really understand what that is. Because sometimes it's very easy to just kind of go to the next opportunity, the next, and it's like, you take one step in front of the other, but you're going to end up, you know, if you don't have a destination, you're going to end up there. And so really choosing intentionality being a really important thing that we need to all do. What is your vision? Like, why are you on this earth? What is your mission state? What do you want to say? And so I do ask people to do that because, you know, it's easy to drift and say yes to a bunch of things, but if it's like, if you're aligned, this is what my goal is, here's the impact I want to have in the world, then you know exactly what to say yes to and what to say no to. It also, um, I think, relies on a belief that you can make this happen. How yeah. did you conjure that and sustain that in these kinds of processes? Well, I think one of the things that's most important is, you know, like, for example, writing the book. The idea of writing the book is a lot easier than actually mapping it out and getting it done. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, and it's such a long journey. I think in some ways, if, I, if I'd known how long the journey was, maybe I wouldn't have started it. But knowing you had a destination and then taking steps towards it and saying, okay, I have a goal. I'm going to map out this goal. What are the things I need to do? The three things I need to do. What are the three things that keeps me from doing nothing? And so a goal map is incredibly important in how you want to get things done. And then knowing when to put time into it and invest in it and continuously iterating, that's also extremely critical. This is all so inspiring and exciting and I think really instructive, um, both in a very kind of practical, business-focused way, but in a deeply heartfelt, personal way. Um, if people... Um, want to know what you're doing next. What's on your list of your next strategic goals that you're aiming for? Well, first, I just finished this chapter. So I want to make sure that, you know, I get the word out about the book and, you know, share it with as many people in the world that can find use for it. That's going to be really important. And then obviously, like I lead this 35-year-old company's Incredible. We're announcing new products every day. We, we just extended to 54 new countries for a DNA product. And so still a lot of work to be done. And I'm really excited. I'm in the beginning of this chapter, you know, at this company and Ancestry is so incredible. And it's been my honor to be at the helm of the company. Well, Deb, it has been our honor to have you join us today. Thank you so much. If people want to find the book, be in touch with you for more about your work, where should they go? So my substack is dublu.substack.com and you can always sign up for my newsletter. And if you ever reply to it, I actually see all the emails that come in. And I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can look me up, Deb Lu, and I'm there.
Deb, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for joining us today. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours and be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. Many thanks, as always, to my beloved team, Kara Pogue, my producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineers, Dion Simpkins and Chris Tooks. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And everyone, go out there, map your goals, and believe it, you can do it. Thanks so much. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.